Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, episode 119. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by my good friend, Daniel Foch. Dan, what's going on, man? Not much. Had a lot. I think you and I were chatting before we started recording today. We got a lot of deals on the go. Yeah, deal week. Yeah. Feels good. Listeners to the show and um, just a lot of transactions going on, a lot of opportunism happening in the the space. A lot of good deals presenting themselves, even though I, I, I don't think, and I think most investors who are doing the deals don't think that we're even close to the bottom of the market. But I think that there's enough distress out there that you can find the odd good deal that if you are creative and able to work it into place, you can make the right thing happen. Yeah, for sure. Honestly, one of my favorite parts is we're doing single family home transactions. We're looking for duplexes. We got student rentals on the go. We've got large, large commercial and multifamily properties on the buy and sell and investment side of things. We're funding some really cool stuff at Land Bank. So it's uh, exciting times. And it just goes to show, you know, we're doing deals. The people that we're working with are doing deals. I agree. We we likely haven't seen the bottom yet, but on the way down, there are good deals to be had. And there's this funny Instagram video floating around of as soon as it's this person jogging and as soon as interest rates drop, another jogger shows up and it's like buyers running to the market and another jogger shows up and another jogger shows up and then it becomes a race back to the market. So remember, good deals are made, not found. Um, so you can find decent ones now and make them better. And uh, as soon as we start to see a bit of a correction or a the cycle starts to turn, um, I think everyone will be in good shape. I'm hoping we are anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking with somebody about this yesterday. I don't really think the market's going to come ripping back when um, rates start coming down. Like I think if rates start coming down that means that we're in a recession likely and they need emergency rate cuts to stimulate the economy. And when you're in a recession, usually the first thing on people's mind isn't buying real estate. So that's the first thing on my mind. Yeah. But then, you know, if you look at what we discussed on the, the hope acronym, I think during the Evergrande episode, uh, 117, I want to say it, um, you know, housing will be one of the first things to yeah. respond to interest rate hikes or sorry, cuts, um, the same way it was one of the first things to respond to interest rate, um, hikes. So there will be a period of time, and most economists that I've spoken with about this, I remember there was an interview I did with um, Rob Kasich from um, BMO for Better Dwelling, and he was saying, you know, there's this period of time where rates have started coming down, but they haven't maybe bottomed yet, and prices are still suppressed as a result of recession, rate hiking cycles, et cetera, when you're going to end up with the best buying opportunity. And that's, that's you know, we've been talking about that that time on this show for the past, uh, well, since we started it, basically. Yeah. And actually, on that note, maybe I'll, I'll quickly plug the course before we get into the episode today. We do have a couple spots left in the course. Um, thank you to those of you who have signed up. Uh, we're really excited to have you. Maybe we'll call you out by name on the next episode just to, to give you a special thanks. But um, we have obviously a limited number of people, and, uh, and we're really excited to put the course out. So, Make sure you join realestateinvestingcourse.ca. Uh, link will be in the show notes as well, and we're excited to have you. Anything you want to add before we jump no, in? No, no, let's get into it because we got to get episode today, Dan. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about hedges and hedging against inflation and using real estate to do so. So today's episode is really about, and you're going to love this, how real estate only ever goes up. 
Well, it's actually about how the buying power of a dollar only goes down. Okay, well, that's it, folks. We can finish today's episode early. You heard it here. Yeah, and I hope you all enjoyed it. That's but, it. Uh, but no, really, we're going to talk about the reduction in buying power, which is also known as inflation, and how real estate is considered to be a good hedge against that inflation. We're going to start off by talking about inflation. Then we're going to talk about inflation in Canada, past inflationary periods, and we're going to look at whether or not real estate has been and will be a good hedge against the current inflationary environment and why it's historically considered a good hedge against inflation. Yeah, the reason I consider real estate to be an inflation hedge, and we're going to get into a couple of them, is because it captures most of these goods that are inflationary. Compare real estate as an input-output business, like making a car as an example. So when you're making a car, you take steel and labor and technology and you make it into a car in a factory setting. With a house, you're basically taking the cost of a bunch of inputs that are and can be inflationary and you're baking them into a product, that product being a house. And so real estate investment includes land, which is a scarce asset that can also be inflationary. You know, during a lot of this is, again, about that um, reduction of buying power of a dollar. So when money supply ramps up, you see the price or the, the value of a lot of goods get uh, start to increase. Um, so and land and real estate typically ends up being one of them, but also includes things like lumber, siding, labor, copper, shingles, etc. Plumbing. Right? Exactly. Plumbing too. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, again, I'm referencing a lot of memes on Instagram and TikTok and whatnot this morning, but there was a meme floating around of a, a plumber in Toronto and it's just a, it's just like plumber on break or something like that. And it's just a video of a guy eating a sandwich, wiping his mouth with $20 bills like they were napkins. Yeah. And, and you couldn't have said it better. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. People are complaining about how much money plumbers and other skilled trades make because plumbing is inflationary. And, and these inputs are all things that we know Right now, we're in an, in an inflationary period. Um, so owning a piece of real estate is owning the output of those inputs, which are inflationary, and therefore giving you a hedge against inflation. And maybe we should introduce the concept of a hedge after as well. But because you no longer have to buy these things down the road when they're uh, more expensive at the inflated value, you would get them. So you get them today at their today value. You don't have to buy them. And this is sort of just time value of money, the idea that something is more valuable today than it would be tomorrow, or it's better to have money today than it is to have that money tomorrow. The other reason is basically the idea of inflating debt away, which is far more sophisticated concept. Um, and it has to do with inflation and the value of money against, uh, against the asset. And then the final piece is, is rents and rents typically are inflationary, but you know, we're actually seeing them regulated in Canada. And so you almost mm -hmm. get a little bit of that buy or per, uh, pricing power stripped away from real estate. Yeah, good call. So Dan, you wanted to just mention hedge. And I remember way back, this must have been an early episode where we did like some real estate investing terms or something like yeah. that. The funniest thing is if you think about this in the very, very simple manner, a hedge, think about a hedge in a garden, right? A hedge gives you privacy. It gives you some protection. Well, a hedge in investing that literally does the exact same thing. So an inflation hedge is an investment intended to protect the investor against, so hedge against a decrease in the purchasing power of money or, you know, against inflation. So, and, and just to add to that, like the 
term where you most often hear this is in hedge funds. And the hedge funds are called hedge funds because they're allowed to take on a copious amount of leverage, more leverage than any other type of fund. Must in, be nice for them. Yeah. But in order to do that, they legally have to have a counter position for every position that they hold. So they can take a little bit more risk on the leverage side, but they have to hedge against their bets so that they don't implode the entire financial economy as a result of having too much debt exposure right, to one single type of investment. There we go. Okay. So let's start with what's happening with inflation right now. This is from the the StatCan uh, website here, Dan. So I'm going to talk about CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index. Most of you may have heard it, it rose to 3.3% year over year in July, following a 2.8% increase in June. Acceleration in headline consumer inflation was mainly attributed to base year effect in gasoline prices. As a result, large monthly decline in July of 2022, that was down 9.2%, is no longer impacting the 12-month movement. Excluding gasoline, the CPI rose 4.1%, edging up from 4% in June. Now, electricity prices rose significantly in Alberta, increasing by Wow, almost 130% in July on a year-over-year basis. That's crazy. Uh, Excluding energy, the CPI decelerated to 4.2% after a 4.4% increase in June. Now, Dan, before you get in there and tell us about um, your piece with electricity here, maybe it's a good idea to remind everyone what base year effect is. I know we've touched on that a few times, but uh, maybe a quick reminder for everybody out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think well, we get into it actually just after this because they mentioned it in this in this, so we'll we'll, um, we'll cover it when Satkin mentions it. So, but I think the electricity part is is interesting to me because it impacts us as landlords, especially those who I mean, you know, there's I think when you're buying in a lot of smaller tertiary markets that have had multiplexes for a long time, you will see a lot of individually metered multiplexes. But the reality is, a lot of us are buying multiplexes that are not individually metered, which means mm-hmm. that. You know, the landlord is typically covering the cost of those utilities and then baking it into the rents. And so they talk about this, the electricity prices, but but this would also cover kind of any, I guess, any utility costs. And and Quebec actually, when they change their uh, or peg what you can increase rents at on CPI, they it's different for each type of heating type. I didn't know this, but hmm, I just, yeah. So, so when we get to that at the end... It's an interesting um, piece on there. But uh, anyway, electricity prices rose at a faster pace year over year in July 2023 than in June. This acceleration was mostly due to that 128% increase in Albertan electricity prices, which can be volatile amid high summer demand. In the early months of the year, when demand was last this high, provincial rebates and a price cap uh, kept prices lower for consumers. These policy interventions were gradually phased out and ended in spring 2023. Uh, base year effect also contributed to the increase when the provincial rebate program was introduced. In July 2022, prices fell tw- uh, 24.4% month over month. This decrease is no longer impacting the 12-month movement, which means that you're you're past the base year effect, putting upward pressure on the year-over-year figure. Yeah. I mean, back to base year effect, Dan, how bad are, uh, how bad do you want to pat yourself on the back right now for, for literally calling that base year effect? You know, it, it actually happened faster than I anticipated in earlier. Like, we're actually not over the hump of some of the, the bigger things like fuel and lumber mm-hmm. and a lot of these other inputs. So, base year effect hasn't even actually truly set in yet. 
yet. It just has on that one good as an example. But I generally try not to pat myself on the back <laughs> to be truthful. I, I just try and find the next thing people don't understand properly and try and shed some light on it because there's just too much information out there. And they sh say chivalry is dead. Come on. Anyway, moving on. The mortgage interest cost index <laughs> was up 30%, posted another record year-over-year -year gain, and remained the largest contributor to headline inflation, which oh, is man. the irony of that is not lost on us. Not um, on us, but I think on most it may be. Yeah. And, and so if you exclude that, all items excluding mortgage costs, uh, CPI would be at 2.4% in July. And so you know, if they were to strip out mortgage costs, if they were to, to cut rates back down to where they were, then we would have inflation in a normal range. Uh, obviously, that's not going to happen, but it doesn't. It does make it a nice policy tool for them later when they do need to get inflation down, especially if we're in. You know, if we're facing with with rising fuel costs, a period of maybe stagflation where you are basically a recession and also inflation, and they're going to have to pull rates out as well. Yeah, these these policy tools feel a little bit more like policy tricks sometimes. But um, I'm just glad that I'm not them because this sounds like a very difficult job yes yes um on a monthly basis the cpi rose 0.6 percent in july following a 0.1 percent gain in june again largely a result of higher monthly prices for travel being july uh peak travel month on a seasonally adjusted monthly basis the cpi rose 0.5 percent Okay, so inflation is going back up in Canada as we predicted it would on this show. And my guess is that it'll be going up again for a few more months until we end up in a recession. And then maybe we end up being stuck with deflation like China. Have we talked about deflation before? Not really. We've sort of just said it's bad. Uh, you want to define <laughs> it, don't you? I, I, we I haven't. Do. Yeah, we haven't had a dictionary here in a while. So um, let me give you two here. First, what is deflation? Perfect. You know, but anytime we do one of these, I want to, I want like a little soundboard where I can like press a button and like some cool sound pops up and we know it's a dictionary. We piece. should do that for sure. Um, anyways, deflation, the definition when the overall price decreases so that inflation rate becomes negative, that is called deflation. It is the opposite of the often encountered inflation, which we're talking about which is a reduction in the money supply or credit availability in the reason. And that is for deflation in most cases. So again, very simply put, deflation is when the overall price levels decrease so that inflation rate becomes negative. So right now, again, we want the banks, the Bank of Canada's target rate to be a 2-3%. Deflation would be if it was minus 1%. Not to be confused with disinflation. Now, disinflation is a temporary slowing down of the pace of price inflation. The term is used to describe occasions when the inflation rate has reduced marginally over the short term. Unlike inflation and deflation, which refer to the direction of prices, disinflation refers to the rate of change in the rate of inflation. So Dan, why is deflation so bad? Yeah, so disinflation is like your derivative, which you would have learned in, in calculus in high school. I think I might have forgotten that one. Um, yeah, so I'm going to use this to to just dive right into the primary reasons why real estate is an inflation hedge, uh, which is leverage. Um, but before I do that, it's funny because like every time I post something about inflation on TikTok, especially when, in, well, on anywhere, but I just like to pick on TikTok because the people there it's are easy. especially intelligent. Um <laughs> But uh, 
I'll post something about inflation and they'll be like, oh, you know, they're saying inflation's coming down, but the price of goods isn't coming down. And I still haven't made this video, but I'm going to about what the difference between disinflation and deflation, because apparently everybody needs to hear that. But people hear inflation's coming down and they think the price of goods is coming down. It's like, no, they're just going up at a slower pace mm-hmm. than before. They're still inflating. It's it's still inflation. Prices aren't coming down anytime soon. Yeah. So or, or okay. possibly ever. Yeah. Um, so read me this tweet from Zero Hedge about uh, China's um, CPI. China's CPI is minus 0.3%. Um, China's PPI is minus 4.4%. Um, and that is what the EXP is that... Expected. Expected. So China's CPI is... Minus 0.3 and the expected is minus 0.4, whereas China's PPI is four point minus 4.4 and expected is minus 4. So, Dan, I think it's safe to say we have deflation in China. Yeah, and so if we saw deflation in Canada, then the buying power of money goes up and the value of assets goes down, the relative value of assets to that to that money, which means that if you have debt and you're holding an asset that is worth less, the debt is now costing you relatively more. This is why deflation is especially bad for a place like Canada, where we have such high household debt, top five in the world consistently for the past decade, you know, 115 to 120% of uh, household disposable income. Deflation would and, and probably will realistically it, at some period over the next year or, or so uh, really hurt us in Canada. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's let's look at an example here. So let's say you bought a house in 2022 at the peak for $1 million and put an $800,000 mortgage on it. Then it deflates. It deflates in value to, let's say, $800,000, but you still owe $800,000 on that house. But the house is now only worth $800,000, so you lost equity in that house. Right. So now think about the opposite happening and not just in terms of values going up directly, because honestly, like, you know, when people say real estate only goes up, what they really ought to be saying, and, and, you know, Bitcoin maxis would really love me for saying this one, (laughs) is that the price uh, or the purchasing power of, of a dollar or currency goes down. And so, you know, also think about it, not just directly in terms of um, the value of the house. Like I would literally be measuring the house and there's, I've seen some cool charts like this. It's like, what's the price of a Canadian house in gold? What's the price of a Canadian house in wow. in lumber, in Bitcoin, right? So um, in regards to those costs like lumber, plumbing, et cetera. So um, read me this article. This is, this is, a chilling article, by the way, to, and not like dude chilling, like yeah. in the park in Vancouver, like like, um, <laughs> yeah. like, like, like hairs on the back of yeah, your neck, yeah, maybe yeah. Um, heroin, I think maybe a better word, but yeah. um, read me this article from May of 2020. The headline is, so May of 2020 is when this article came out, like you're two, three months into the pandemic. Inflation is the way to pay off coronavirus debt. Yeah, damn. I mean, shout out to Noah Smith of, of Bloomberg News for, for kind of calling that and uh I mean, I don't, you know, again, maybe tinfoil hats. I'm not sure, but that is. Uh, he just saw it coming. I think that no, the yeah. way nobody else did. So wait till you hear the article. His foresight gives me the shivers, almost like reading chapter six of the fourth turning. And I'm sorry for those of you who this is a little bit into the weeds, but it's an important thing to understand, given that we're facing inflation right now and the high household indebtedness that we're against while we're facing inflation right now.
Yeah, so let's just take a minute here, Dan, and, and we'll go through some some excerpts from the article because I think it explains a very sophisticated concept very clearly. Yeah, it's true. I'm glad that we didn't have to try and explain it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice when smarter people help us out. Um, happens often. Uh, so the article says, and I quote, disrupt that delicate web and much economic activity can grind to a halt. This is probably why asset bubbles hurt the economy a lot more when they're accompanied by high levels of debt. Coronavirus, of course, will be worse than any asset bubble. So the web that he's describing is the web of debt that will hamper the U.S. economy's recovery. Businesses that survive will, with diminished revenue will struggle for years to pay down debt before they're able to start investing and expanding again. Debt will likewise hold companies back from changing their business models to better fit the demands of the post-pandemic economy. Workers burdened by debt will have a harder time switching jobs or going back to school or switching houses, in the, in it, which is a big thing in the, in the U.S., making labor markets less efficient and allocating talent to where it needs to go. But there's another way that the government can shrink the mountain of debt weighing down the U.S. economy. Inflation. Now, again, this article is U.S. specific, but inflation is a global problem right now. Because most interest payments are fixed in nominal terms, inflation makes existing debt less important in real terms. Raising the long-term inflation target from the current 2% level to a still modest 4% would substantially increase the rate at which debt effectively vanishes. The U.S. has used inflation this way before. Economist Joshua Eisman and Nancy Marion wrote. So the average inflation rate over this period from 1946 to 1955 was 4.2%. Inflation reduced the 1946 federal debt to GDP ratio by almost 40% within a decade. So a decade of 4% inflation today would do the same thing for total debt, not just government debt. Wow. Now, there are some difficulties and challenges inherent in this approach. First, inflating away debt is an act of redistribution from lenders to borrowers. Creditors will oppose having their assets eroded. This anger may be blunted by reminding creditors that inflation also reduces the real value of the taxes they'll pay to service that government debt. Second, hard money advocates um, like real estate podcasters in the U.S. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hard money advocates, including older economists who remember the high inflation of the 1970s, will fret that inflation could spiral out of control. This probably shouldn't be a concern. The Fed has shown little difficulty in convincing the world that it's, it's committed to its 2% inflation target. And we're seeing that right now with their hiking cycle. As long as the Fed made it clear that 4% wouldn't eventually become 6% or 8%, it would be able to hold the line at a new higher rate. A third worry is that the inflation, that the higher inflation could erode real wages. Now, theoretically, wages rise faster to keep pace with prices when inflation is high. But in the real world, this depends on worker bargaining power. And decades of weakened unions and rising industrial concentration have weakened the workers' power. The big overhang of unemployment workers in the coming depression will weaken it even further. The situation now is very different from the post-war period when strong unions and full employment made sure that wages kept pace. The last piece, you can really see this happening in real time. This is why there's so much civil unrest about inflation. This is why there's 
polit- the political business cycle exists. People shifting from swinging from politicians who create employment and inflation to politicians who fight inflation. But there's there's a more important piece, and this is the process that they describe as inflating away debt. Okay, so what exactly is that in inflating away the debt? Okay, so let's get into the weeds here. Because, Dan, it kind of sounds like the budget will balance itself. Yeah, yeah, it could for sure. Yeah, let's jump into the weeds here. Yeah, so if there's one thing I know about you, Dan, is that you do not ever go into the weeds quickly. Kind of like that swimming scene from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire where he's in the Triwizard Tournament. Dude, what? I don't know. My kid loves watching Harry Potter movies. I was trying to be relatable. Okay, play it cool. Good cover, though. What's wrong with Harry Potter? We're, let's just not go there on the show. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to lose half of our audience. Probably lose the other half or the other half will support it. Who knows? Fair enough. Uh, well, let me make it clear then. We are completely neutral on Harry Potter. On that note, actually, let's make it even more clear. We are completely neutral on basically everything controversial. Consider us freaking Switzerland on this show, okay? Perfect disclaimer. <laughs> okay, so back to the weeds. Uh, to inflate away the debt refers to a situation in which the value of money decreases over time due to inflation, which we've been talking about, leading to a reduction in the value of debt. In other words, as the general price level in an economy rises, Each unit of currency becomes less valuable. Each dollar becomes less valuable, which means that the amount of debt denominated in that currency becomes relatively smaller or less valuable in real terms. This phenomenon can have important implications for borrowers and lenders. And this is not financial advice, by the way. I'm just explaining a concept to you um, because I think, you know, with what's happening in China right now, we're probably just as likely to see either sustained inflation regime in, in Canada or a period of deflation uh, or disinflation and then deflation through through a recession. And so, you know, also think about the counter thesis that we mentioned before of how deflation makes debt worse. And you're seeing that happen to a lot of people who bought in 2022 at high, highly inflated prices and now owe more than the property is worth. Mm-hmm. So borrowers, inflation can benefit borrowers because they're repaying their debt using money that is worth less than when they initially borrowed it. This effectively reduces the burden of the debt. For example, if somebody borrows $100,000 at a fixed interest rate and inflation causes the value of that money to decrease by 10%, the borrower effectively pays back a smaller amount in real terms. Um, I mean, for that to really be impactful, you'd want to see their wages increase or their earnings increase in some way, but functionally, that's how it works. Lenders, on the other hand, may be negatively impacted by inflation. And for Canada, where a good portion of our economy is a oligopolistic banking system, this might not be uh, something we want to see here. Uh, when they receive payment, that the money they get back is worth less than the money they lent out. This can erode the purchasing power of the interest income that they earned as a lender. Now, again, just to jump in, this is why, again, right now we're seeing, and I'm sure you've heard if you follow any form of real estate investing or if you know a mortgage agent or if you try to get financing yourself, the lending environment has gotten so much tighter and that is because lenders are now extra cautious because they're not making the returns they were in the bull run. Yeah, they're not making the relative returns that they were for sure. So c- central banks and governments sometimes deliberately use inflation as a strategy to manage and reduce the real value of debt. This can be a particularly beneficial for heavily indebted governments, which we might have here in Canada. Do you think? <laughs> By allowing moderate inflation to occur, they effectively reduce the real value of their debt obligations over time. And you you heard that in the example they used from the 40s, um, where it reduced government debt um, by allowing that moderate inflation to occur. 
However, this approach also has risks and consequences, such as the potential loss of confidence in the currency and uncertainty of the financial markets. And that starts to resonate a little bit more about what we're seeing happen in present day. It's important to note that while inflation can help borrowers by reducing the real burden of debt, it also has broader economic implications. It affects savings, investments, and overall economic stability. So the extent to which inflation can inflate away debt depends on various factors, including the inflation rate, the interest rate on debt, and the overall economic conditions. So you're saying if we're in a period of inflation, I should just lever up and inflation will eventually save me? Absolutely not. That is not <laughs> what I'm saying. So That is not the advice we're giving you. Let's discuss the idea that rental income can or could, in the perfect scenario, also hedge against inflation because it's, it, you know, that's a piece that's important to our audience, but it's also a little tough in Canada. It varies on a province by province basis mm-hmm. because the amount at which you can increase rents is, is regulated at a provincial level. For sure. So let's talk about that rental income. And again, this is going back to thinking about real estate as that inflation hedge. And Dan, I'm picturing my hedge as like one of those nicely manicured, you know, guys out there cutting it with a chainsaw, maybe, maybe like some, some designs in my, in my hedges here. Um, Rental income. So rents are usually inflation sensitive, meaning that they go up when inflation goes up. We've seen that literally firsthand across the country in Canada over the past year. But in many places in Canada, you can only increase the rent to market value on turnover, which means when your tenant leaves and you get uh, the right to rent it to a new tenant. Otherwise, you can only increase existing rents by how much the government allows you to. So let's go over some of those. In BC, residential tenancies, you can only increase annually by 2%. In Alberta, there is no limit on how much a landlord can increase the rent, but a landlord can only increase the rent after a year has passed from either the start of the tenancy or when the last rent increase was made. So you can increase essentially however much you want, but only on an annual basis. In Saskatchewan, there are no limits on rental increases whatsoever. In Manitoba, the 2024 rent increase guideline is 3%, and that is effective in January the 1st of 2024. Tenants must be given proper notice at least three months before a rent increase takes effect, and that's in Manitoba. Here we are in Ontario, capping rent increases below the rate of inflation, and the province is holding rent increase guidelines at the standard 2.5% uh, through 2024. We'll see if that changes. Quebec Housing Tribunal released its rent increase recommendations for 2023 and ongoing with an increase of 2.3% for leases that don't include heating, 2.8% for electric heating, 4.5% for gas heating, and 7.3% for systems that use heating oil. What the heck is going on there? So, yeah, I find that really interesting because they are trying to capture the fact that there are major differences or disparities in the inflation of different energy costs. And I can tell you, as somebody who owns a rental property that has oil heat. Oh, yeah. 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 We've heard, I know. We've heard stories oh, about yeah. this one on the show before. Yeah. So, I mean, the oil heat is making an attempt to bankrupt me. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like, and uh, I know propane's come down a little bit. So, for those who are on that... Um, it's a little bit better, you know, they're not feeling it as much, but, mm-hmm. um, and, and we've made, you know, we've thought about making like the cost is so substantial that like, like it costs 
thousands of dollars for the and this isn't Crazy. a cold climate this isn't a cold climate um a couple hours north market yeah and uh the cost is so substantial on in the winter months that it would literally if we were to switch to a propane heating system or add some pellet soaps or something it would recapitalize itself within like two or three months wow so anyway so quebec is like just way ahead of the game here with um all these nuanced uh you know, rates in accordance with heating. It's, well, it's I mean, it's cold there too, right? So yeah, if yeah, you're paying, they figured it out a little. If faster. you're paying to heat, yeah, I mean, we lose money in those months. Like yeah, the, the the place makes money on an annualized basis, but in like there's three months in the winter when it's cold that we lose money. Like yeah. it's pretty, it doesn't cash flow. Fascinating. Okay, so uh, Quebec was the last one. Now we're moving a little further east to Nova Scotia. The existing temporary rental increase cap of two percent will be extended to December thirty first of twenty twenty five. The province intends to set the cap at 5% per year starting um, uh, 2024, and that new amount will be set in regulation. So, again, quick recap. Um, honestly, it's either it seems to be no real cap or between like the 2 and 3%, and then you've got a whole bunch of nuanced ones in, in Quebec, Dan. It is funny. Um, I mean, you have like this dichotomy between like free market. Yeah, literally, it's either free or two. Free or, or you know, we're doing it below inflation. Yeah. And it's interesting from my perspective because so this is it is kind of back in the weeds, but it's also important to realize because this is where policy and the government can actually impact the ability for real estate to hedge against inflation. So when your rents are regulated below the rate of inflation, they're taking away your pricing power as a landlord. And so you know, Airbnb as an example is the opposite of suppression of this rent because it gives landlords like the shortest term for turnovers mm -hmm. because they can set the market rate like every month when they or every day when when the market comes back. And that's good pricing power. That's very agile pricing power. And so, you know, at a municipal, federal, provincial level, these anti-Airbnb laws al almost are also suppressing yield, right? Because they're pushing you back into these rent controlled environments. Real estate offers a hedge against inflation through pricing power on the rent side when it, like yielding real estate. So capital appreciation is is a hedge against inflation on the cost of goods, right? But yield is a is a hedge against inflation through pricing power. So if inflation increases, uh, rent also increases, enabling landlords to offset higher expenses. If you get rid of pricing power that through these rent controls like 2% anything below inflation, you basically eliminate the ability for a landlord to keep up with inflation. And that gap is a tax that like it's it's a hidden tax. You, you hear about inflation being a hidden tax, but that's that's basically a, a, a tax that you don't see. Um, and it's okay for a little bit. But over time, if you, you know, if you hear if that happens over t a course of 10 years, now all of a sudden you're super behind and you hear this people who have who have, who have um, had their rents go up at the allowable rates for the past 10, 15 years, tenants who have been in there and tenants are paying one third, right? 50% yeah. yeah. of market rent. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like I, and I think that it's, you know, the, the system, like we need tenants to be able to afford housing. Um, but it just, it does create a disparity between the inflation scenario. And that's a very good example of the gap of how the gap accumulates over over a 10 15 year period when you see tenants who are paying like i have a property for sale right now where one of the tenants has been there for 20 years he's paying like a fifth of of market rent um crazy yeah and you can't really you, like there's you no do anything you, well yeah. like and and nor should you be able to like they they honored the system they paid their rent increases over their lifetime they were a long-term good quality tenant like you shouldn't 
displace somebody like that because the reality is like they have you know they would never be able to find housing again um so i i do think real estate is a good inflation hedge on construction costs because a house bakes all of those costs into a building um but it's and it's also good in such that debt can be inflated away if we are in an inflationary environment and you're and there's debt secured against the property but it's not good in its most important part which is pricing power because pricing power is regulated away in a lot of those markets in Canada. And this is why I think that should we end up staying in a more inflationary environment, you'll see continued popularity of markets like Alberta, right? Um, Saskatchewan, where there isn't a, um, a regulated rental increase in and like investor capital will start flocking to those because you're not, you're not seeing capital appreciation hedge against inflation in markets like Ontario because of credit costs. And because we're getting into disinflation and deflation. And so it, it really the whole thing is, is inflation is very much an interest rate story to me. When rates are cheap, the price of everything goes up and we see inflation in all these goods, lumber, et cetera, that's more money supply and the real estate values also go up. The, the bigger question is, does real estate protect us against deflation maybe like we're seeing in China right now? Because it sounds like that might be a bit more of an economic story over the next 12 months. Yeah, sounds like a great, uh, great stuff, Dan. I just want to take the end of the episode here to do a quick summary of everything. I know we've covered a lot of topics, inflation, deflation, disinflation. Um, but let's get back to the hedge aspect here and and kind of why we're talking about all this, which is, is real estate a good investment hedge against inflation? Is it a good way to protect your money when prices of other things around you start to rise? which again, we call that inflation. So here are five reasons why real estate can be used against like a shield or a hedge against that inflation. The first one being value keeper. So when prices go up, the value of real estate can also go up. This means that even if the cost of things is increasing, real estate once had those things as inputs like lumber, construction materials, labor. So the value of your real estate might grow as well, helping you keep up with those higher costs around you. The second one being steady rents. If you own real estate and rent it out to others, you can earn money from that rent. When prices rise, landlords often charge more rent. So you can earn more money as rents go up during that inflationary period. The third one is stability. So real estate is considered a safe and stable. Even when things in the world are very uncertain, people still need places to live. So real estate tends to keep its value better than other comparable things that might not change in price a lot. The fourth is helps others with borrowing. If you want to buy something big, but you don't have all the money, you might borrow some. If prices rise, inflationary, you may need to give back more money than you borrow. But if you used your real estate as a promise to borrow money, it might be worth more too, which can help you with that extra cost from inflation. And the final reason why real estate is a inflation hedge is the limited supply. We can't create new real estate very quickly. So when people want houses, they want one that already, that already exists, which makes that already existing product more valuable. And again, this can help protect you from rising prices during inflation. Yeah. So, I mean, real estate can act like a shield that keeps your money safe when prices are going up. It's a smart way to make sure your money doesn't lose its value when everything around you is getting more expensive or the purchasing power of a dollar is going down. Um, 
quickly wrap up with a couple of housekeeping items. I think I'll let you do merch. I'm gonna. You did a, a very eloquent pitch on the course last episode oh, or a couple episodes your, ago, your so turn? I'm gonna do mine. Yeah, nice. Uh, but before I do that, make sure you sign up with our uh, newsletter in partnership with Patter, uh, which is there's a link in the show notes. Yeah, right? link in the show notes. That'll that'll be coming out. I think uh, starting sometime in September. Dan. So right now we're just collecting um, collecting emails. Guys, you're gonna want to sign up for this. It's gonna be a uh, going to be just a very nice quick concise view weekly as to what is going on so um make sure you sign up for that one okay so as you know we, if you've listened to the most recent episodes uh we created a course that takes you from being someone who owns zero properties or one maybe your primary residence or you're on your first investment to someone who has made their first investment and is actively growing a real estate portfolio uh we've talked a lot about putting a course together and we're finally doing it we were going to release a pre-recorded course and we likely will eventually, but we wanted to do something in person first so that we can gradually develop the content that will go into the future cheaper pre-recorded course. So we we want a group of people to help us develop that course. Yeah, for sure. So the plan is um, launching in a few weeks. So basically running um, from mid-September to uh, early December. So don't worry, no homework over Christmas. And uh, it's going to be a practical application of a lot of things that we tell you how to do on the show. We're just going to show you how to do them and and make you do them yourself. I mean, the goal would be that you start this with the goal of creating an investment thesis and purchasing a property. And by the end, you're actually actively going through that. And you could be somebody who has $0 or $100,000. And we would just help you to reconfigure the capital stack on, okay, do you need to go raise equity? We're going to teach you how to do that in a very tasteful way. And you know, OPM kind of like buy all this. Anyway, you know, you know, our, our know. perspective yeah. on the guru space, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and, and so we want to kind of teach you how to do that in, in the, the way that's proper in the industry. So what you can expect to learn, um, very quickly, do you want to start us off there, Nick? Yeah. The first thing you can expect is, is where to start. And, and that starts with mindset. And the next is how to build your power team how much money and experience you need and how to get it. The next would be how to qualify for financing. How to pick a market. How to set up your portfolio and your first purchase for scaling. How to create your unique investment thesis. How to find your first deal. How to offer on your first deal. How to conduct due diligence on your first deal and make sure it's a good deal. And how to execute and then operate that first deal. And then we want to show you how to create enough value to scale through refinancing or fundraising. And the last but not least is how to refinance and how to get deal number two. And the objective is really to set you up for, you know, even if you're an experienced investor and you just kind of feel like you've hit a cap, how to make your next investment or even your existing portfolio serve you with your goal of scaling long-term. Because, I mean, I think the ultimate end goal for a lot of real estate investors is to to be able to do this as a full-time job. Maybe not today, but, you know, in, in retirement, as an example. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I would love to just be a real estate investor in my 50s yeah. and just be driving around in a pickup truck and fixing my properties. <laughs> and I, that might not be the goal for everybody, but that, Some people that want to be really uh, like remote property management. But yeah, right. you, can get, you can take Dan's dream as well. No, and, and closing everybody i think dan and i are both very excited about this we we honestly tried to avoid doing this for quite some time and just had so many requests and people reach out and we realized we were kind of doing it already um this is just making it a bit more official right i don't know if we'll ever go back to 
this the way we're doing this course because this is again we're basically looking at this first group to help us really build it out um these are going to be the early adopters so if you want to be one of those people link in the show notes reach out sign up ask us any questions and uh we'd love to see you there yeah i think the you know one of the big reasons that people do courses is to you're paying for accountability right i mean i think you can research and find all of the answers to most of the stuff like you know there's really not anything exceptionally unique that that a lot of these courses gurus etc are, are are doing right it's the aggregation the centralization the accountability and that's the other thing that we're really excited about on the course so like you know for those of you who have joined you already know this but there's like a forum built into the course where you know we have conversations going on. We're talking about things. We're going to be talking about course materials. We're going community. to be holding holding one another accountable. And this is a community that we always talked about building. And so this is sort of the core group of people that will help us put it together. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.